the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. to the podcast welcome back we are back in a new year it is a new year Woo. Woo. so happy new year happy new year justin what a great uh, 2018 thought we uh, covered a lot of ground 20 episodes worth yeah kind of all over the map we're gonna keep with that we're gonna change some things around a little bit yeah i think we'll yeah. go outside of our 70s through 90s things and maybe delve into a few movies at least pick of the weeks that are like 60s and get into the early 2000s, 60s, but not yeah. get too crazy. Yeah. We're still keeping with our, our normal You're not going to get a 2010 out of yeah, us. I mean, yeah. I don't want to shut the door on that, but no. I'm just saying. But uh, <laughs> no, it's been great. Thank you for uh, listening. Um, so this episode, uh, we, you know, it's a little bittersweet. Um, it is. With the passing of Penny Marshall, we decided to do a full on full-blown Penny Marshall tribute episode. Why not? She's a pretty iconic woman. Yeah, so we're going to do somewhat uh, what we normally do. We'll make our main feature film of discussion a league of their own. But for our picks of the week, um, this time we're going to do like a filmography and we'll talk a little bit about each of Penny Marshall's films outside of A League of Their Own. The ones that she directed. She did quite a few where she was an executive producer, but we'll yeah. probably just focus on the um, ones that she directed. We'll also have a brief bio on yep. Penny Marshall, let you know. Who she is. If do, do you know who she is? Yeah. You should. So that'll be fun. And then we'll also, as always, do our Murray moment. So I think we picked A League of Their Own as our main feature because, one, it's... I think we both feel like this is Penny Marshall's strongest film as a director. And she's got uh, quite a few, but the, this one in particular, yeah. I, I feel is, yeah, her most heartwarming and most involved story. And I think probably got the most acclaim and probably the most memorable of her career. Though I'm a big lover of Big, I think this one probably is one that maybe people remember the most. I think so, yeah. I mean, I think you, I think people remember Big for specific reasons and it's a and it's a great movie it's fun it, it's great um but i think a league of their own is a, a better film yeah uh, all throughout so what are we going to be talking about as far as the league of their own goes oh man um well we're probably going to hit on a little bit of the actual story of the all-american girls baseball league i think it was also the all-american girls softball league and then it changed a few different times but Pretty much sticks with yeah. all American girls. For those that don't know, league. this was based on a true story and yeah. is pretty true to the original story as well. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk a, a little bit about the history of uh, a little behind the scenes action, the cast, and, you know, what kind of a movie is this? What do you consider it? Sports movie? Period. Piece? I think it, it like toes the line of all these, and yeah. it, it functions uh, really well in all aspects of those genres. Mm-hmm. And kind of, I I'll definitely mention all the reasons why I love it. I'm sure all throughout the discussion. Well, uh, before we get started with the first clip, 
Um, could you tell us, Lindsay, what is A League of Their Own about? So A League of Their Own um, is is the story of the first season of the All-American Girls Baseball League. And we are set up with the main story following two sisters who enter the league and kind of the training process, how how they get into the league, training pr- process, everything that kind of goes into that, and the first season that unfolds before them. It should also be said that this, while this movie um, is talking about something that is completely true and happened, um, it is still a movie. So it's still fictionalized, and we have to think about it like that. And every, every time... You know, not just with this movie, but you watch any anything that's based on a true story. There's always going to be parts that are that are fictionalized to, because you have to make in you have to, to con- condense time. Yeah, into an hour and a half or two hours, it's impossible to fit all of the factual truth into something that's like right. it's impossible. Well, we'll go to our first clip from A League of Their Own, and we'll talk about it. What are you looking at? Yeah, what are you looking at? Nothing. Right, nothing. All these girls gonna be in the league? You wish. You do wish. They're gonna have four teams, 16 girls to a team. That's right. 64 girls. Yeah, what are you, a genius? <laughs> you know, they got over 100 girls here, so um, some of you are gonna have to go home. Yeah, sorry about that. Come on, Doris. Those people are jerks. What do you mean, some of us? Do it. <laughs> Some of them are going home. Hey, how did you do that? Excuse me. Hey, hey, you caught that? Hello? Doris. Did you see? Jeez, let's go practice. She caught him with okay, a bitch. Okay. So we'll start out on just a brief history of the original story um, that this movie is based on. Yeah, it's and, a great place to start. And that was uh, during the Second World War, a lot of the men that played baseball were asked to do their patriotic duty and a lot of them joined the military and went overseas a lot of them just uh would entertain the troops they'd play games overseas but Mm -hmm. during this time baseball was such a huge thing that even the president himself at the time drafted a letter stating baseball is very much like a big part of keeping people's spirits high because it was something that uh you could watch, you know, yeah. you could take your mind yeah. off the war, take your mind off of everything that was going on, relatively low cost. And uh, they didn't actually shut down the men's league. They did right? not shut down yeah. the men's league, technically. They, they don't say that in the movie, but right. they, they allude to that's what's happening. But in reality, that did not happen. But uh, in the movie, it's, it's a fictionalized, uh, like a Hershey's chocolate type character. Choc- but in yeah. the, in the, in real life, it was. Um, you mean the guy that that establishes establishes and has the sort of like the wherewithal to say, let's start a women's league, sure, um, so that people can still enjoy baseball. The owner of Wrigley's Gum, um, who's very connected with baseball, is you know, yeah, Wrigley Field, bit. Chicago, <laughs> had the idea to say, let's start a women's league, um, mm-hmm. let's keep the games going, and sort of the idea too was is that they could. Uh, when some of the men were gone or when there were away games, they could, because a lot of times they had these stadiums where 
the away games, they, nothing was happening. No money was yeah. being generated. Yeah. So they could use the women's league to play during the, the away gaps. games. Yeah, fill in the gaps and get people in the seats, keep people watching baseball, keep people interested, keep people's minds off the war. And so that was the genesis of, of getting a women's league started. And they sort of show a tiny bit of that in like, the sort of montage of new news mm-hmm. news reels yeah. in the League of Their Own movie. But just want to give you a little basis of, you know, where yeah. the movie came from and I mean like the the uniform things were were true. Like they really did wear like the the skirts that they that they show you in, in a League of Their Own. Um I think that the idea behind that was that they weren't going to actually be sliding or that they wouldn't think that women would be sliding which proved to not be true at all yeah and um so this film uh the story of the the women's baseball league professional baseball league was made into a documentary that particular documentary penny marshall saw Mm -hmm. was very fascinated in the story was able to acquire the rights to the story brought the story to light got a studio involved got writers to um assemble a script and really she this wasn't a movie that she was assigned to direct this was sort of a passion project um that she sort of put all the pieces together and and she is as a big sports fan herself was kind of dumbfounded that she's like how did i not know about this you know and yeah i I think uh, above so much with a league of their own you can tell that someone who loves sports made this movie because it is it is very much a sports film and um i think just the fact that penny saw this documentary and is like holy crap i didn't know about this how many other people don't know about this um i think that that's um that's really fascinating and that's i think what makes a really good movie is when your heart is in it like that yeah, and, and we kind of said this in the beginning, in the intro, that this movie does skirt several genres. You know, it's mm-hmm. a period piece. It is a comedy. It is a drama. Uh, it's also a biography. It is also a sports film. And it really does capture all of those genres equally yeah. and tastefully. And a lot of times bio movies can can be a little dry um the acting can be a little rough and this was a movie that seemed like it was definitely assembled with love and respect and trying to really delve deeper than just um getting the story across of of what happened during this time period but actually getting into some characters really um i think that you really feel for the characters in this film i think that you really get a sense of the period in which this film took place but again, like you said, it's it's very much a if you if you like sports and if you like sports films, um, you you get a lot of that feeling one of the best. that comes out, and it really really does um, capture that really nice that essence. For me, one thing about A League of Their Own that I love the most, it you know, if if we're making like sports films, I'm never gonna say like, yeah, I love sports films or I love bio movies or period pieces. There are three genres I'm never gonna say I am the biggest fan of that. But what I think is so cool about this movie in particular is that it's not necessarily like 
someone's it's one person's particular story and their you know the the honest journey of like what this one actual true to life person went through because the all-american girls baseball league or all-american girls softball league or whatever name changes it went through it ended up being the all-american girls professional baseball league you know this was a real thing and it went on for 10 11 years and how do you tell that story in two hours you know there there's so much there so i think with a league of their own what's so cool about it is that it takes different types of women or the the main character of Dottie Henson which is Gina Davis is um kind of a uh, mixture of of a few different people the same thing with Jimmy Dugan Tom Hanks's character everybody in it is maybe based off of of somebody or four different people or maybe they are a fictional person but you know there there were single moms all of these different types of women that got involved with this, um, I think that it's telling a true story because maybe it's not, you know, maybe there wasn't an exact Dottie Henson, but there were women like Dottie Henson. And I I think that that's one of the coolest things about this movie. I love biopics, don't get me wrong, but this one's just a lot of fun and is, is, is a good vehicle to tell a story that's so uh, that's so expansive this is a story that could have easily gotten lost so it is it it's it's equally fascinating to me as a period piece that it it shows a different side of of american life and american society before the 50s yeah that's very very true a league of their own really does confront sexism in a lot of different ways uh you know putting women at the forefront and bringing, I mean, just the fact of Penny Marshall having the guts to make a movie that's basically an all-female cast about, a, I mean, pretty much all-male sport, like, that's that's pretty gutsy. In a relatively unknown story. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm, I'm sure that the, when this came out, people didn't realize that it was actually a real thing. And and but. and that's to say that, that you know you can't disregard the impact that this movie had. I mean, this was yeah. a huge film. I mean, movies nowadays every weekend make a hundred million dollars, but in 1992, for a mostly female casted film by a female director uh, to make a hundred million dollars plus at the box office and to garner you know, audience acclaim, critical acclaim Mm -hmm. all across the board. This was like a massive Hollywood success story. And that's something that uh, really can't be talked about enough. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it was sort of unheard of at the time. I think that in some ways it kind of forces people that maybe wouldn't, um, wouldn't warm up to a movie like this. It Okay, not to be totally like gendered here, but you know, a sports movie is going to probably cater to dudes more so than anything. But this movie, because of Penny Marshall, because every movie she's ever done offers some type of like warmth to it and kindness, um, I think it forces you to examine that and forces you to see that. I think the one scene, and Justin, you and I talked about this before, was, um, and you, uh, I didn't think about this, but you did because you were saying 
well, I'll just say it, the scene where um, uh, there are tryouts and one of the girls doesn't know if she made the team or not and it's because she can't read. And she's being pressured, like, what, just look up there, see if your name's up there. You can't read it or, you know, get out of here if your name's not up there. And she just looks lost. And it's so emotional. We should also say that that is a, a, a Cusack, so related to That's right. John and Joan Cusack. Um, the What it is, is uh, one of the team members comes up and goes, honey, can you read? And Justin, you were saying that, like, maybe that wouldn't have dawned on a man to walk up there and ask another man if he can read. Yeah, I don't think that there there would have been as, as much of a... Yeah. A, caring. Um, not just caring, <laughs> but like an intuition to yeah. think that was the case. Yeah. And I, I think that that's what this movie does so well, is that it makes... um, It just kind of forces you into that idea of thinking about... A sports movie with a heart and not I mean a lot of sports movies have heart but this just has a whole other layer and depth to it yeah I agree I think this is a special movie that really again does um tie all those genres together and and yeah. works so efficiently um so we'll uh we'll go to another clip from League of Their Own we'll come back we'll talk about the cast and a little bit more about Penny Marshall's involvement in the film I'll tell you what I'll miss. What? Well, I miss the girls. I miss you, Kit. Me? Yeah, how many sisters do you think I have? I love you, Kit. Really? Yeah. Just when I want you to stay, you're leaving. Well, thank you for getting me into the league, Daddy. You got yourself in the league. I got you on the train. Play great. Like you. Stay in touch, you hear? Come home every once in a while. If you don't, I'm gonna come back here and hit line drives at your head, okay? Go on. I love you. And you are going to miss this. I don't care what you say. So we talked a little bit earlier about Penny Marshall's, how she put this movie together. I mean, she was definitely involved from its uh, infancy. But I know you've recently been reading the Penny Marshall book. Yeah, her memoir. uh, You had a little bit of uh, insight on sort of the the behind-the-scenes of of going right before production sort of before we get into talking about casting there mm-hmm. was some casting decisions that were made that yeah. got switched around can you talk a little bit about that yeah totally um so and what is the book that you're reading up the name of it so yeah it was a, a penny marshall's memoir uh entitled my mother was nuts it's a really good read i have to say um i i've read uh, almost all of it i i got it in the mail way too late to to finish to finish everything but man it it reads exactly like how penny marshall speaks so it's 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 pretty fun so as far as a league of their own goes 
pretty much every woman in Hollywood, uh, once this movie came up, was looking to audition. I think you even told me, Justin, that the batting cages in Hollywood were uh, were all filled with people trying to brush up on their baseball skills. And the biggest thing for Penny Marshall as far as casting for this movie is you had to be able to play ball. Uh, She didn't want anybody that, again, going back to being a sports fan, she didn't want anybody that couldn't hit, couldn't play, wasn't trainable, anything like that. And there were quite a few casting, you know, things that started out differently and ended up a different way. She she really wanted uh, Demi Moore there for a little while, and I'll I'll let you look up the um, for the Gina Davis role. yeah for the Gina Davis role, and she got pregnant, and Penny I heard her say this a couple times, and she she says it in the book too, and she said it in interviews that she literally got effed out of the part, which I just <laughs> which is very Penny Marshall to say that. But um, Demi Moore had the role until she got pregnant. Um, Sean Young, too, um, from Blade Runner and many other movies, uh, was also up for that role, too. Another person was who auditioned and, I, and who sent in uh, an audition tape uh, of her playing ball. And I, I think that she wasn't the greatest was Marissa Tomei, but Penny really liked her as an actress and, and wanted to use her, but I, I think she wasn't maybe one of the best. She'd been learning how to play ball on the set of uh, My Cousin Vinny with Joe Pesci. Many, many, many other people were up for this role. And actually, the role of Gina Davis, Gina Davis didn't come in until way later. Um, that role was originally for Deborah Winger, I'm a big Deborah Winger fan, kind of grew up with the woman. I mean, let's see, Justin, you want to help me out here? An officer and a gentleman, Legal Eagles, one of my personal silly favorites. Uh, Even a later one that I love, this movie called Eulogy that she was in. Um, I mean, Deborah Winger's been around the block. Black Widow, great movies. Anyway, Deborah Winger had the part that Gina Davis had of Dottie Henson. And she, I want to say that, um, uh, not Laurie Metcalf, Laurie Singer, geez, what's wrong with me right now? Laurie Petty. Thank you. Laurie Petty, thank girl, um, was already cast as, uh, as Kit. And if you think about it, Deborah Winger and Laurie Petty look way more like sisters than Gina Davis and, uh, Laurie Petty. Um, that was an easy fix, just, you know, dye Lori Petty's hair. Anyway, so Deborah Winger was cast in this role, and she, um, I, I think, was pretty well far into the game until um, Penny Marshall happened to read an article where Madonna said, you know, she was looking to do more movies, and... Penny says in an interview, you know, she had one good movie and one not so good. Um, So she thought she'd give her a try. She had to make sure first, of course, that she could play ball and that she could that she could do this role. She needed a dancer for the, the part that she envisioned for Madonna. And so Madonna, I think she was like on her way overseas to do a press for Truth or Dare. I believe. And she stopped in New York to do a quick um, test 
basically to see if she could play ball, if she if she if she could fit the part. And um, uh, Penny Marshall was told that Madonna's trainable, and that's all that she needed. So Madonna got signed on, and with that, Deborah Winger was like immediately. Penny said it just pissed her off immediately, and she was just like, "What kind of movie are we making here? You want Madonna involved now?" And pretty much, I'm I I don't know Deborah Winger's side of this, but but she dropped out after that. So Gina Davis um, was recast, and if she could play, she looked like a ball player. And I mean that 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 is uh that's that for the and I think with Tom Hanks, she had. Um, you know, she had worked with him obviously on big and he was kind of coming off of some not like, you know, a couple of bombs, couple of bombs. Yeah. And Tom Hanks was kind of looking for something to not reinvent, but to pull him out of, pull him out of his slump to use a baseball term there. And this movie certainly did that. I think you brought this up. We were talking about this off the mic. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you were saying just the presence of Tom Hanks and what people view of Tom Hanks as a sort of like very nice, um, respectable, upstanding gentleman seeing him in a unlikable role. Yeah. Immediately with the fact that, that it is someone like Tom Hanks, you are a little bit less put off by yeah. him being so unlikable <laughs> in the beginning. And I do think it works, and I think it works to the movie's favor, and I do think it works to Tom Hanks' favor. And I think that is a big part of why you grow to love him in this role. Because um, I think yes. if you would have taken somebody who played more scumbaggy roles that you're used to being kind of scumbaggy, <laughs> you wouldn't quite, you know, you'd already be sort of put off like, oh, yeah, this guy is a total, yeah. you know, a-hole or whatever. But Tom Hanks, you no one was really used to seeing him in this kind of role. So it, I think that was a really smart move by Penny Marshall and Tom Hanks. Yeah. I think this is another movie where we have an ensemble cast and everybody really is kind of pitch perfect. And I'm not, I can't say that I'm a huge Rosie O'Donnell fan for a lot of movies that she's done over the years and in the nineties. But I think that she really shines in this movie. And I think her strengths of being sort of the, uh, more gruff, outspoken character like really works for this movie. This is what kind of sparked their friendship. She she and Penny Marshall. I mean, they they went on. I mean, after this and did like some Kmart commercials together. But then they were like, they were bosom buddies after that. After this, uh, but Rosie O'Donnell really like her. She to me is like. <sighs> And I play softball now in a co-ed league. She is like the quintessential baseball player to me. I think that her reactions when she's on the field, um, she is such a good, uh, she plays a baseball player very well. Yeah. And I uh, I have got a tremendous amount of love for Lori Petty. Yeah. Um, I feel like Lori Petty was never giving quite a fair shake in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think she really holds this movie together. She really drives the Gina Davis character. I mean, I know that they're sisters in the movie, but she really, um, her excitement for doing this, like she sees the opportunity and she seizes that opportunity. And 
uh, we do see this dichotomy, you know, this interchange of characters where Gina Davis's husband is off mm-hmm. to the war. She doesn't see this the same way. Like Lori Petty's not married. She sees this as an opportunity to break free from her everyday life where Gina Davis is sort of just buying time, waiting for her husband to come home, even though she's got more uh, skill and physical talent than Lori Petty does for the sport. And I think there really is a lot of good play. I, I think that this is a movie that could have easily gotten caught up in their relationship. Um, but I think it like really knows where to um, show those moments of uh, family and interchanging relationships and the difference between the two and uh, makes you care for both characters and makes you care for the team more. And uh, I guess like just a final quick thing, uh, Gina Davis, uh, mm-hmm. y- you know, you think of her, you would think of her as very athletic, but she said she had never played any sports up until um, training for this film. And uh, after the film realized that she was pretty, had a lot of agility and athleticism and went on to, become like an olympian yeah in they, archery they said in her her in her tryouts for this that she was a natural but yeah hadn't really discovered that part of herself yeah well um we'll uh move into our uh bio portion of the um we'll go to a quick clip of of penny marshall herself speaking and then um Lindsay, you've uh tell us a little bit about penny yeah, marshall's life be happy to and is an actor and is a filmmaker I was uh, successful. I had a successful TV show. I had a couple successful movies. But that, you know, that I tried to make people laugh and I moved them in some places and movies I lived. I didn't hurt anyone, I don't believe. So, and I have a great family. All right, so boiled down, Penny Marshall was a woman who captivated America, an atypical actress, director who remained humble, self-deprecating, loyal to her friends and family, all while being adored by pretty much everyone in Hollywood. She brought people together. She worked with friends. And if you watch interviews with her, she's always been this smart, sassy, kind of grumbly, sarcastic woman who lived a full life full of like way too many experiences to be contained in just one memoir. She could have told you a million stories and never repeated one, and you would have felt captivated every second. Penny persisted by way of her talent, humor, warmth, kindness, and the age-old art of keeping up with friendships, something that I feel like is kind of lost on a newer generation. While doing research on Penny Marshall, man, I was so overwhelmed by how amazing this woman was and what trails she blazed for people, or women really, Um, in the TV and movie industry. She once said about her turn into directing films, quite simply, I want to make people laugh and cry. That's what I do. I would do an impression of her Bronx accent, but it'd be terrible. Um, She was a master at evoking emotion and comedy. And that's something that came really naturally to her. Even though she started as an actress, many of her co-stars often said that Penny functioned on set as if she saw the whole picture and not just from an acting standpoint. In other words, she was a natural director. Therefore, her jump into directing wasn't a total surprise, um, starting with directing a few episodes of Laverne and Shirley that she starred in and various other sitcoms of the day, though Penny would 
often say that she felt like directing just happened to her, especially after she replaced the first director on her first film, The Whoopi Goldberg Vehicle with Jumpin' Jack Flash, only um, two weeks into production of the film she replaced the director. She had a career in television since the 1960s, always playing brazen women, something that she would say was out of desperation for wanting to establish herself. The woman experienced a charmed life, and she knew it, but she also worked for it. She never took her connections uh, for granted at all. An Italian girl from a working-class family in the Bronx, Penny was the youngest of three kids, her mother a dance teacher who didn't really take kindly to her tomboyish, sports-loving nature while her father was an industrial filmmaker. And Penny's remarked countless times that her parents really didn't have the happiest relationship. She attributes her keen, sarcastic sense of humor coming from the need to laugh through all the dysfunction in her family, something that she kind of always took in stride. She had to in order to survive. She was about eight years younger than her siblings, so in essence, she was kind of an only child. And she said that her cutting sense of humor came from her mother. It was fine to laugh with your mom or with her mom as long as you weren't in her line of fire, Penny said. Her brother Gary once said something like, Well, our parents aren't really around, so it's probably a good idea for us three kids to stick together. And that's exactly what they did. Gary gave her first break, and they remained tight for their entire lives. It should also be said that Gary, having an immensely successful career, whether it's directing, producing, executive producing, acting, whatever it is, um, it often seemed to kind of overshadow Penny or have the potential to overshadow Penny's career. But it's important to note that he wasn't ever holding her hand. He wasn't standing behind her directing. He didn't give her uh, her first acting job just because it was his sister. She had talent. And Gary said this of uh, giving Penny any type of job before. I'm nice, but I'm not that nice. I guess it's just kind of the magic that was born into the Marshall family. And if you ask me, I think Penny is one of the most underrated directors of our time. Through all these interviews that I've watched with the woman, I swear she's so strangely laid back. And I don't think it's due to pills or drinking or insert whatever vice here. Speaking of vice, though, a funny thing I learned about her was that, and I knew about this from my mom growing up, but I didn't know that it came from Penny Marshall, was that she loved to drink milk and Pepsi together, something that she wrote into her character in Laverne and Shirley. It's like a melted milkshake, apparently. Yuck. Yeah, it was a thing. My my mom told me about this as a kid, and, and it didn't come back to me until I was, anyway, doing research. She drank that on the show, right? She did. Yeah. <laughs> apparently it's a thing, though. You know? I mean, whatever, you know? Are we going to try it after that? I think we I think we might. Um, now, early in her career, Penny had supporting roles on hit sitcoms like The Odd Couple, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, and Mork and Mindy. These are all shows of the day that were huge. The Odd Couple even being said, I think historically, to be like the most perfect 
sitcom ever created. But she wouldn't become a household name until her character of Laverne, paired with her friend Shirley, played by Cindy Williams, would appear on one of the most popular sitcoms of the day, Happy Days. You know, with the Fonz, hey, you know who I'm talking about, and Ron Howard. Um, This is when Penny's career really blew up. And the Laverne and Shirley characters became so popular that they spawned their own sitcom, which ended up being the biggest at the time, um, a show about two best friend bottle cappers from Milwaukee. The show lasted from 1976 to 1983 and is forever cemented into television history. We could do an entire podcast on Laverne and Shirley, so we totally encourage you to watch some episodes or a documentary on the series. It's a really long, interesting saga. I'll say this in researching this episode. Yeah. Laverne and Shirley, at the height of its fame, Yeah. Um, they said that it was double the audience watching, that it was double of what Seinfeld uh, was drawing at the height of Seinfeld's fame. Whoa. Just to give you an idea of like how big Laverne and Shirley was yeah. at the, the height of its fame, which kind of blew me away. I mean, I, you know, I mean, it was massive. It was, yeah. It was just, it was like gargantuan. Wow. And especially just like to put it into perspective, you know, I, I, I think Seinfeld's probably like the biggest sitcom that like, I know things have moved over into streaming services, yeah. but if you think about like, broadcast television yeah. that's a big deal that's yeah, like huge Laverne and Shirley was like you know broadcast in like other countries yeah. and just like an international like <laughs> yeah yeah massive hit kind of a big deal um and from this point on as I said before Penny moved into the director's seat first with Jumpin' Jack Flash in 1986 and that kicked open the door for what would be the first of a handful of solid gold movie hits starting two years later with Big starring Tom Hanks the film that kind of I mean he was known but it, it really catapulted him to stardom. The next four years yielded two equally as big films, the Oscar-nominated based-on-a-true-story film Awakenings, starring Robin Williams and Robert De Niro, and our main feature, obviously this podcast, 1992's A League of Their Own. And we'll talk more about her films coming up here in a few minutes, but Penny's acting career definitely persisted until the end of her life. It should also be said that Penny's talent really seemed to just come naturally to her. She knew what worked, but was always open to other people's opinions, even if she thought you were wrong. She was totally willing to hear you out. She was widely known as an inventive, creative woman who was very warm and funny, two main attributes I think that she brought to every film that she ever directed. It's damn near impossible, I feel like, to find anyone in Hollywood who'd speak ill of her, and maybe you'd be condemned even if you did, but I, it just seems like... Her biggest thing, she just never wanted to be lied to. That was her big thing. Just don't lie to her. Be straight with her. I think a lot of people looked at her like she was a den mother, like a kind soul, this groundbreaking woman who, like the Laverne and Shirley song says, made all her dreams come true, along with opening the doors for other women in the movie and TV industry. I'll tell you what, that her her memoir, as I said before, My Mother Was Nuts, was such an awesome read, and I'm not totally done. I hate that I just got it like a day and a half ago, but I'm almost there. Um, if you want to learn more about her after this podcast, I strongly encourage you to check out this book. It's a really easy read, and she's just 
very entertaining and I just I I, I wish uh wish I could hear stories from the woman. I mean, just what an awesome lady. Um it must have been, really been something to know her in real life. So, rest in peace, Penny. This episode's for you and I I hope that, you know, we're going to talk more about our movies here in just a little bit, but um really hope that uh you guys listening out there investigate her a little bit more. Well, thanks for putting together that bio, Lindsay. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we'll get into, um, so again, uh, kind of breaking from what we normally do, um, instead of doing uh, two movies for our, our picks of the week, we're going to kind of run through briefly Penny Marshall's filmography, mm-hmm. um, starting from her first film and going in chronological order of when those movies came out. So Penny Marshall did uh, seven films as a director, a league of their own being smack dab right in the middle. So um, we'll talk about the first three films that she did prior to a league of their own. And then the last three films that she did um, rounding out her career. So the first film uh, took place that she directed her feature film debut was 1986's jumping Jack flash. So jumping Jack flash was really what got her in. And it was uh, Joel Silver and the other uh, producer for that film. I thought it was I thought it was Whoopi Goldberg, but I guess it was the the fact that um, well, she and Whoopi Goldberg like ran in like literally ran into each other on the street. I guess that's something that happens in New York. And they went out and had dinner, and then uh, Joel Silver contacted her and was like. So we just had this uh, director drop out of this Whoopi Goldberg movie. We really want you to do it. And she was kind of just like, why? Why do you want me to do it? And she said, sure. But also with the idea that everybody kind of knows that she, she didn't go into it mincing words or saying or with a chip on her shoulder or anything like that. She went into it saying to the crew, to everyone involved, to Joel Silver, saying, I'm probably going to need you for some things. Gary, brother, I'm probably going to call upon you for some things. I'm probably going to reach out to my friends and ask for some advice. Because I know, uh, like in her book, she says, I, I, I felt like I, I took a graduate level film class in three days. Okay, we'll just set it up real quick. So Whoopi Goldberg is a a bank, not, not a bank teller, but she works at a bank. And so she, along with, you know, 25 other people are sitting, um, in a, in a room behind their computers. And for one reason or another, some British guy hacks into her computer and is like, I need your help. And this is when the 80s, this is the 80s when this is... You didn't is, get a lot of instant messages in <laughs> no, the 80s. It's exactly. Think about it like an instant message, except it takes over your entire computer screen and you don't have any other chance. You, you can't do anything else except reply to this person. So this guy is like, I need your help. And she's like, who are you? Blah, blah, blah. Let's form this... Let's form this relationship via text message before it was text message. She gets involved in espionage, I would say, um, some type of thing to get this British agent um, out of harm's way and get him back to America. It's not like 
the greatest plot ever of a movie, but I think that it was mainly it was it was a movie that was like let's put Whoopi Goldberg in a movie and capitalize on her stand-up career, which is great, you know. I love Jumpin' Jack Flash. My mom loves Jumpin' Jack Flash. Our our mutual friend Melinda loves it. Like there there are plenty of things to draw out of this movie that are funny. It's not necessarily because the writing's so incredible. It's because of Whoopi Goldberg. It's, it's if you like Whoopi Goldberg, you're gonna like Jumpin' Jack Flash. Yeah, and and I think that Penny Marshall knew she was at least aware enough maybe insecure in her directing abilities. She was at least aware enough to see where either where she would falter or where the script would falter, um, that she needed to do some things to, to make sure that this movie still worked. And one thing, um, that she mentions in her book and I I totally noticed it and it couldn't have been a coincidence, but I noticed it rewatching it was that there are so many, comedians in this movie and watching it now you're like oh hi John Lovitz hi Phil Hartman what's up Michael McKean like all of the Carol Kane like all of these people and and that's what Penny did was she was like I need some help so I'm gonna call up all my friends and be like do you mind being in this movie because I need background people to make sure that the comedy even if I'm failing or something is failing in this movie, I need background people to make sure that there's still comedy going on in this. And while I don't think it's, you know, the most amazing display of, of someone's, you know, directorial capabilities, I like Whoopi Goldberg. I like 80s Whoopi Goldberg movies like this and Burglar are like really funny to me, but it's, it's not like a great film by any means i think penny marshall was able to mine out as much comedy was possible in this script and Whoopi goldberg like the same thing with eddie murphy too like you put this stand-up comic in kind of like a subpar movie you're the movie's dependent upon that person yeah i think uh the comedic talent of somebody can only carry a movie so far yeah and this was certainly i think for a first film uh it got kind of battered by critically and 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 box office wise was not a strong start for Penny Marshall, and was also not what she kind of the the movies that she chose after that were not like this 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 is not her type of movie. Yeah, to and I, do. well, and I think too like any director who's not a director who's a writer director, you know, someone who's like singularly like I have a voice. This is like. I'm making the movies, I'm writing the movies that I want to make. Uh, Penny Marshall was not that director. and yeah. But I think that she did have a particular sense and style and, and gravitated towards yeah. particular stories. And I think Jumping Jack Flash, she cut her teeth and then um, moving into her second film, like you kind of start getting the, that sort of Penny Marshall vibe of, of the stories that she did gravitate toward, even though she didn't write the scripts. So then after Jumpin' Jack Flash, two years later, we move into 1988's Big. Um, Which was her first um, collaboration with Tom Hanks, who at the time was uh, very much known as a comedic actor. Um, He was nowhere near the box office draw as he is today. Mm -hmm. Big was very much 
a big a break for him as it was for Penny Marshall as a director. It being the first film by a woman director to gross $100 million at the box office, um, which was actually like a pretty big um, amount of money to draw for just a comedy in general. Yeah, I think it ended up being like $150 million yeah, at the all said and done. Like worldwide. Yeah. Um, and big is definitely, I think, where we're starting to see um, a glimmer of like Penny Marshall's style and these kind of stories that yeah. she gravitates toward. Big came out at the time. Uh, there were there was a a very quick flash in a pan trend of these sort of <laughs> body swap movies, uh, a la Vice like versa. a freaky Friday type <laughs> situation where an older person and a younger person swap bodies. Um, their mind, their brain is in the the older person's brain is in the younger person's body yeah. and, and vice versa. And there was vice versa, like father, like son, eight, like father, like son. It more of like, like father, uh, he like son. was in like father, like son yeah, with Kirk Cameron. Right. They're 18 again Kirk with, Cameron. 18 again with George Burns. Um, oh yeah. And, uh, but Big took on, I, I think where Big strengths are is in the script where it wasn't necessarily a body swap movie uh, like these other movies where it focused on one character and it was just a character who wanted to be big. And so it was a a man, but his mind was still of a 13-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. And Tom Hanks, I think, does a wonderful job of displaying the adolescence, um, the reactions, the timing, uh, the, the way a, a 13-year-old boy would speak. And... Um, because you're focusing on one character and not uh there's not this juxtaposition of like going back and forth between like the old person and the young person you're just focusing solely on one character uh you really start to feel for the character and and you're going on this journey with this character and it really is a sweet wonderful funny vibrant movie tom hanks like excels like in all the the comedic things that he does his timing um, and his acting, and I think that Penny Marshall, um, again, uh, seems to work with comedic actors and lets the comedic actors do what they're good at, and I think that that's something that comedy films, like especially s- someone who is um, known for doing um, improv and like going in a certain direction, like uh, Penny Marshall seems to gravitate toward those um sort of actors and I think um did it again with her third film uh, Awakenings mm-hmm. starring Robin Williams and Robert De Niro mm-hmm. uh, Robin Williams again working with a completely comedic actor I love uh, someone, when Robin Williams and, goes serious and I love it uh this movie to me really uh caught me off guard I had not seen Awakenings until we decided to do this uh, episode, this tribute episode, and I, I'll say this: I'm not, I've never been a huge Robin Williams fan. I know that maybe sound kind of no, crazy, I mean, but his particular brand of domineering comedy has never really been my thing, and that's probably what kind of like has always kept this movie off of my radar. Literally, like, 25, 30 minutes into this movie, I saw a side of Robin Williams that, like, made me want to watch Robin Williams movies. Yeah. And he's so subdued, 
and he's so excellent. And I love Robert De Niro. And I think this is a movie that really was showing Penny Marshall, like going into like a stronger character, like an actor's director type phase where she really honed in. She knew where to let the actors breathe, let them go on with scenes. And this is a very, and again, uh, her getting into true stories, like, you know, half of her career is like movies that are based on true stories or autobiographical. And this is one that really, really, uh, I think few movies like go into what it is to work in the medical field and kind of drift too much into Hollywood. I think like she does the same tasteful things in League of Their Own that she does she brought that to awakenings and that was like the first sense of like her really operating behind the scenes as a director and like capturing like let's capture this moment in time let's not like hollywood it up too much and it does go in those directions it is a hollywood film and it does have those yeah searing moments with the music and 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 the drama well it's a movie yeah um this is a film that uh sorry to jump ahead but is based on a true story of a disease that was basically a neurological disease that um, was basically putting people somewhat putting their brains to sleep and they were sort of living life in a vegetative state uh, for nearly 20 years, 30 years until a doctor played by Robin Williams um, Oliver ex- Sacks was the real doctor. Starts experimenting doctor. with a drug that basically awake, basically wakes these people up. The movie goes through these sort of trials and tribulations of how this drug sort of is working and then it doesn't work. And it sort of delves into how the side effects of this drug are very similar to Parkinson's, which is what mm-hmm. the initial spark was to administer the drug because it had... It was um, used for it Parkinson's. It was used for Parkinson's, but... Um, it actually causes like stronger Parkinson's symptoms in its patients, and eventually the patient goes back into the state that they were when they were first administered to the hospital. And it is a very sad uh, tale. It, it really took yeah. an emotional toll. Oh yeah. Um, but I this cried was, multiple times in this one. But uh, I think this was like a really high mark for Penny Marshall. You know, Big was like we said, like a big commercial hit. It was. Uh, liked by critics but uh, Awakenings I think was the film where she was beginning to be taken more serious as a director Uh, this was a film that was nominated for best picture Uh, even though she didn't get a best director nomination I still think that like um, as far as like Hollywood was concerned as far as audiences were concerned this was a very serious film this was a very like well-loved and critically allotted movie and you know with this one the the no one wanted to touch this script like it it went through numerous people who read it and the the studio kept pushing like the love angle and there's like there's a, a tiny a tiny story in this that really did happen um, with the uh, Robin Williams character and uh, the, who's uh, a nurse who's played by Julie Kavner. You might might know know her as Marge Simpson's voice. Um, th- there's a tiny love story that happens only like two percent, I would say, in Awakenings. But that was the aspect that that the studio was really trying to push. And Penny Marshall was like you know what? No, like I see this as 
as more of like a a medical mystery and trying to figure out I mean Oliver Sacks's journey just like to me she was looking at it from the doctor's point of view and from you know the the book that he actually wrote on this and it seemed like she really took this one personally and you know and, and I mean she did take it personally she said that she kind of likened it to uh, dealing with like her mom and her, you know, health decline and wondering, you know, if, 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 if her mom really knew that she was like coming to visit her or not. And we see that numerous times in awakenings, you know, um, patients, family members coming to visit them and, and saying, you know, I don't know if he really knows that I'm coming to visit him or not. And it is so sad and so devastating, but it's what we all think if you have any type of family member in any type of altered state or vegetative state or any type of dementia, anything like that. I wondered that with my grandpa. Anyway. Yeah, this is a very, it's this an emotional, is a very movie. emotional film. Yeah. I mean, this is one that uh, I don't know if I could sit through again anytime soon. But I will but it say. it really had a, a massive impact on me. With wanting to sit through it again, I could totally watch the movie again. because oh, Because yeah. I think it has... As as sad as it is, especially in the second act, I feel like it is way more inspirational than it is devastating or sad. Well, that uh, brings us to A League of Their Own. And mm-hmm. I think like we're seeing this progressive journey of Penny Marshall as a director. Um, her next three films after the success of League of Their Own didn't really hit audiences as strongly. And... Um, Admittedly, it didn't really hit me as much as, as, mm-hmm. as a film lover. Her next two films, to me, were not big highlights of her career. After League of Their Own, she was going through some turmoil, but she did do a film release in 1994, which was sort of a comedic drama starring Danny DeVito called Renaissance Man. Here's what I'll say about Renaissance Man. Okay. I feel like Penny Marshall had her heart in the right spot for this one. She she knew that it wasn't going to be a giant hit, but she hoped in some way that it would, I don't know, like make people make people feel good. And I yeah. think th- that over her entire career, if anything, that's what that that's what she always strived for was to make was to as cheesy as it is was to like warm hearts and make people laugh but like that's what she was good at yeah, and that's what I, she liked to do I, i'll say the intentions are there in renaissance man uh this is a movie that came out in 1994 starring dana devito who is sort of a down on his luck he's looking for a job through job placement he gets uh put into a job as a teacher on a like an rotc type military school teaching kids Shakespeare uh, trying to earn the trust of these sort of like troublemaker kids that are in a military school um, very in the movie sort of like this dangerous minds meets yeah. uh, dead poet, dead poet society. society yeah and I think like for the 90s fine you know I mean it, it there were it, a lot of movies there was a lot of movies that came out in the 90s um, that we're trying to be inspirational, but we're also yeah. cheesy and unbelievable and at the to same me, time. This is, to me, this is one of the few movies that Penny Marshall did where um, really just scene after scene, it's just like I can't get into believing that anybody would do anything that they're yes. doing. And 
though I am a fan of Danny DeVito, I, I think that he was like horribly miscast in this film. I just, Who would you have cast I, in this role? I mean, really? Well, I just I mean, don't think that Danny DeVito, I think Danny DeVito has the comedic timing and I think he has yeah. the sort of, I think he has the gusto that they needed f- to open the film, but I just don't think that he has the dramatic chops that this film needed to get it over the hump of being this sort of like comedy meets drama. I just never really like got there. Um, no, I mean, I don't, I don't put any fault on Danny DeVito for this one. I, I just think this was like a mixed bag. I just think this was like a, I think this was like, they were trying to mix up too many things. And I just think this is where a comedy and drama didn't meet. I think Penny Marshall had her heart in the right spot with this one. And I don't think that there's, I don't think that there's any fault like direction wise and like making this movie come to fruition. I I I just don't think that it's a very believable script. Yeah, it's just it's just kind of a and again it's like this is a movie where when I was watching it I just sort of felt like um I remember seeing this in the 90s as a kid yeah. and and when I was rewatching it I was just sort of thinking like yeah, this is why I don't really remember this movie. It's just not a very memorable film, and it except for if you're a fan of Mark Wahlberg. If you're a fan of Mark Wahlberg, <laughs> it does have uh, one of Mark Wahlberg's first. We got Gregory uh, Hines, um, Stacy Dash. Yeah, who, I mean, yeah, and don't give me. Yeah, there's you know, it in it it has a very '90s feel to it. Yeah. it. It feels very dated. It does not feel very innovative for its time. No, um, but. You know, again, you want the military version of Dangerous Minds? Yeah, there Here you it go. is. There you go. <laughs> um, so, but, and this was a movie that was not very successful. Granted, it came out. It was a like you said. It was a. Uh, you were telling me before we yeah. started recording. It was a. It was a summer release. It was paired up against Speed and uh, The Lion King. The Lion King. And and like Penny said that you know had this movie. What she envisioned for this movie was like it comes out. While she never envisioned it for it to be a summer movie, she thought if this movie comes out during, you know, when school's in session, teachers are going to take their kids to see this movie. Yes, totally. Yes, teachers would have. And it would have been a teaching tool. It would have been something to help facilitate some type of dialogue. I get it. And she chose to show this movie in like a like kind of like inner city neighborhood because she felt like this is going to be where kids feel the 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 least inspired um have the highest high school dropout rate and maybe seeing something like this is going to get a good reaction out of them and at the test screening it totally did and it worked um it's just like that's not going to work everywhere but it did work for a particular, not a particular, it it worked. It worked for some people. I get why this movie works. To me, Renaissance Man wasn't. It was probably my least favorite of when we, you know we were going through uh, the filmography and watching these films for the episode. I like the lead into our next movie, um, and that was a remake of what some might consider a Christmas film, a '40s movie that came out called The Bishop's Wife. And this was a somewhat remake of that film, mm-hmm. and that was 1996's *The Preacher's Wife*, which starred Denzel Washington and um, Whitney uh, Houston, Whitney Houston, Courtney B. Vance, Courtney B. Vance. And this is a film where Denzel Washington plays the 
lead character, he plays an angel, and this is a movie somewhat definitely based not in reality. He plays an angel who's coming to help Courtney v. B. Vance, who's a preacher, who's sort of losing a little bit of his faith in humanity, losing a little bit, little bit of his faith in God, um, mm-hmm. is sort of struggling in, in his faith, and he is married to Whitney Houston, and he's somewhat not really paying attention so much to his marriage. He's not yeah. so much involved in her, in yeah. her life. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, Denzel Washington, this angel, has been sent to help him uh, it's reestablish. It's not really explained his, while he it's, comes it's, down. It's but absolutely not the explained Lord whatsoever. But he's, <laughs> for whatever reason, he's been sent to uh, unwillingly help uh, Courtney B. <laughs> Vance reestablish some footing in his life. Uh, for I better really, or worse. I really do love the moment though, where Denzel's like r- trying to convince Courtney B. Vance that he's like an angel, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah sure, I'm gonna try to roll up my window right now." <laughs> yeah, and I, I gotta say, um, this movie starts out pretty strong. It does. Uh, it does start it does. out very strong, and as a Christmas film, I think that it 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 functions just fine. Um, but I will say that this movie is very long in the tooth and probably the last 25 minutes uh i was i kind of like just about tapped out of the film it could have been um, 30 minutes shorter it, i like this film it, it, it's you know it's it's not a bad film like i said is it is a is a, is a family christmas movie yes i think it functions just 1, fine 1000% um, for sure outside of that uh i don't know that's one that i'd rewatch or one that i'd revisit but I do think that it does. I give respect to Penny Marshall for um, adding her spin on this. I mm-hmm. I think that for the '90s, it was progressive in a sense that it was a predominantly African American cast yeah. um, that focused on faith, that focused on religion, that really like spent a lot of time with scenes where they're talking about God and they're yeah, and that's they're in not the a church. hot topic at the time uh, and at all. In, and they're and they're in the church and they're very much. It, it it definitely uh, explores a world that I think is not um, necessarily seen in big budget Hollywood movies. Yeah. So I do give it credit for that. I do give it credit for trying being original in that way. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a little bit over long, and and it sort of kind of starts like fighting itself. Like the last thirty minutes again, I think it could have been shorter. But I do think that there's some nice performances, and I do think that it has. Um, a little bit of that sweetness, a little bit of that heart that Penny Marshall offers. In I think all that of it's films. all that. It's all it's all heart and warmth. And Denzel Washington, like I, I don't know. I'm just charmed by that guy's smile, like everyone is. Um, and Whitney Houston really turns in a strong performance. Um, I know there's a little bit of controversy, you know, behind her her time on this film, but I don't. It doesn't seem to me like any of that really affected her performance. It, Penny Marshall didn't really seem like it affected any anything in her performance. And I mean, the pipes on the woman are wonderful too, obviously. Um, but as a story, I've I've seen this movie. This was this review was not the first time I had seen this movie. I, I own this movie willingly taped on VHS. Like it's a sweet, 
Christmas movie. Yeah, and I and I again, I think this is a underrated Christmas film. It is. I think it's you know when I look just at just a little long when I hear people talk about like oh like you know these are the top ten best Christmas movies. Yeah, I, I encourage you next holiday season to revisit The Preacher's Wife or check it out if you haven't seen yeah. it. I think it plays absolutely great and you need something family friendly yeah bam uh, you got it it. i think it works out great in that aspect um as a just a regular everyday movie that i would turn on i don't know that i would you know it's something i'd check out but i think that again it's um i will i'm glad that this wasn't the the absolute tail end of penny marshall's career she did put in one more uh film yeah and that was 2001's yes Riding in Cars with Boys, starring Drew Barrymore, Brittany Murphy. And honestly, this was my first time watching this movie. And I feel real lame for saying that. And it's not that I I didn't know. I very well knew the cover of this movie. I knew who was in this movie. I knew who directed it. Um, I just never actually sat down and watched it. And... I really, really enjoyed this movie. And I know that uh, Drew Barrymore is either kind of a hot or cold button on that one. Um, I'm always a fan of Drew Barrymore, but I also understand why, you know, maybe you cannot be a, a fan of her too. But the story, the this story. Is a, this is a true story as well. Autobiographical it is a true story, story based yeah. on a book. Yeah. And again, Penny Marshall picking up that true story. Um, I think she's superb in telling stories that evoke emotion and that require you to give part of yourself or to empathize with the main character. And and with this story in particular, which is about, um, you know, a, a girl that gets pregnant at an early age, has a kid and she decides to marry baby daddy who comes out as a heroin addict. This is something that is not like, well, one, not an uncommon story Two, not lighthearted at all. But I think if you are going to make a comedy drama about something like this, um, because I mean, how are you going to make heroin addiction funny like you're not it's not it's not a funny thing but I think if you're gonna have somebody do it Penny Marshall would be the person to do it I I was you you go through the heartache you go through it's almost just like the kind of tempered version of what it must be like actually to go through this experience yeah, I, I enjoy this movie. I, I, I won't say it's not without its faults. I like this sure. is a movie that I thought Penny Marshall is like was the right director for this movie. Yeah. But I thought that the drama and comedy were like fighting each other uh, mm. so much mm-hmm. in this film that it felt kind of uneven. And it is a movie that jumps around in the timeline quite a bit. And Drew Barrymore, because she does, this was when she was a bit younger they just couldn't really make her look older and she does i just i think that this would have maybe been better again like like i said with renaissance man like maybe a different actor in the lead role but i will say this movie really did uh hit me hard like emotionally 
you know, and I think this is a movie, depending on how you grew up, like, you know, it's going to pull on particular emotional strings, um, especially like if, you know, you came from a single parent background. I think this does a really good job of portraying the struggles of of uh, somebody trying to make it who has aspirations outside of just being a parent, but is 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 not getting help from their spouse and that's where I think the movie does a really strong job. It's the 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 other half, the other side of the film where uh, the main character played by Drew Barrymore, Drew Barrymore is older, and her son is older. Where doesn't quite get there for me, but I still feel emotional connection to it. I still think it's a good movie. I still think it's one worth checking out. I think it's a great uh, bookend to Penny Marshall's career. Um, I think to Steve Zahn, I think, is like a fantastic comedic actor. Oof. I don't think he's ever, yeah. you know, really gotten his huge break. But Our second Steve Zahn movie. We talked about Reality Bites in yeah, like episode and, three and, and or four. He, and, you know, he yeah. he's always had a, a very comedic drive to him. Mm-hmm. And I think that Penny Marshall really finds a way to show, again, comedy and drama hand in hand and mine a little bit about each of those so that you're still laughing, but you're also crying. Yeah. And, uh, he's really fantastic. And this is one of my favorite performances that he's given, uh, he, him playing the, uh, husband heroin addict to Drew Barrymore and, uh, really puts in a couple heart wrenching scenes whenever the, uh, older son, I was going to say, re- re- you know, when they have a reunion together, I hope you're going to bring that up. Yeah. yeah. But I think, again, it makes a great bookend to Penny Marshall's career. I think that... Um, Brittany Murphy, just want to yeah, say, Murphy. was great in this film, Brittany too. Brittany Murphy's fantastic. Um, also, too, want to say that I think Penny Marshall would like it, or not like it, but would agree with what you said about this movie jumping around. It, it was something that bothered her about the script, was that she felt like it... it it never had stability that it just jumped around too much and and she tried to work with it as much as possible but i think she'd probably agree with you in that in that sentiment yeah and it is and it's not necessarily confusing but i just don't really yeah i just i just yeah, don't never really confusing. feel like yeah it's 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 it's, it's it's tough sometimes to the transitions just aren't yeah, there. They're just it just really hardly cuts into different yeah. uh, eras and um but Again, it's 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 a movie worthwhile. I think all of Penny Marshall's films are worth watching. I think and, all um, of them, all of them share the same thing that they are trying to be warm and trying to make you feel something. So there you have it, the filmography of director Penny Marshall. You know, I hope we gave you a little bit of insight into each of those movies. Again, I think um, as a completist, I you know I wanted to see these movies. I enjoyed the two weeks of just like spending time with yeah. her filmography and kind of seeing her growth as a director. Yeah, as I mean, as much as we always want to stick to the format of doing picks of the week, I, I think as far as being an episode to to Penny Marshall going through the films that she took the time and effort that she put into to see where she started and where she ended up. Um, she was truly, you know what, Justin, I think she was a Renaissance woman. Wow. Whoa. Well, we'll, uh, 
and sticking with our format, we'll go to something that um, I'm sure you're all familiar with, and that is our Murray moment. Oh, man, get ready. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. This Murray moment is a little different than usual. I'm about to tell you about a moment in TV history that some want to forget, others are scarred by, but most kind of remember it as, I don't know, with some sense of fondness, Penny Marshall included. I promise I won't do this often, focus on just an event that our Murray brother was only a part of, but this is a monumental moment maybe not all of you have heard of. Only a short month after Billy joined the season 2 cast of SNL and was looked at as the new guy, the creator of SNL, Lauren Michaels, wanted to do something different. He wanted to change a pace and maybe to give the cast of Saturday Night Live a fun time out of the New York studio with, you know, they'd become familiar to this. This is like a vacation almost is what he was thinking. So. Lauren marched um, into the head of NBC programming with a seemingly brilliant idea. Let's take the cast to Mardi Gras. What a great idea. It also happened to coincide with a giant gap in the NBC primetime schedule during the February sweeps week. Penny Marshall and Cindy Williams of Laverne and Shirley that we've already talked about were going to be in New Orleans. Henry Winkler of Happy Days was going to be the king of the parade. And Lauren knew he could get them involved. And Eric Idle of Monty Python, of the Monty Python troupe, was also wanted to be involved. So things were kind of falling into place. But no one really thought about the logistics of actually pulling this one off. And while Lauren was warned about possible problems, he also had the mayor of New Orleans and the police force like acting that they were more than stoked about the show coming to town and just repeating no problem to everything that Lauren brought up. Well... All the production staff arrived about a week before Mardi Gras to get a lay of the land. They were supposed to figure out how to skip all around the city in the middle of tens of thousands of drunk people and produce this 90-minute live program. Well, Billy Murray, Gilda Radner, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Jane Curtin, New Orleans hometown boy Garrett Morris, Lorraine Newman, and Buck Henry all arrived a few days before the festivities began. They all visited with um, Garrett Morris's family, had a home-cooked meal, something that everyone agrees ended up being the best part of the New Orleans experience. And of course, the SNL boys also lifted up with the locals who were very, very free with giving away all the booze and cocaine possible. The ladies of SNL, from what I can surmise, were staying holed up in their hotel rooms. And when someone like Gilda would leave her room, She was donning a mask, so no one would actually recognize her. This was really the first public outing for the troupe, doing signings at a mall, meeting people face-to-face, barely any or no security at all. 
And maybe Billy and the boys were cool with this, but Gilda, Jane, and Lorraine were kind of freaked out on top of being totally nervous about actually pulling off this live show. And the on-site production staff was kind of going through a lot, too. Writer Marilyn Miller was down for the count with 104 fever. Main writer Alan Zweibel was going through a breakup, heavily medicated, and Gilda was emotionally helping him through that whole thing. While another writer, Tom Schiller, who you might have heard me talk about in a previous Murray moment, he's the guy who did the never-before-released-to-the-public Billy film Nothing Lasts Forever. He was going through his own emotional mess, and to top it off, senior SNL advisor Dick Ebersol was dealing with um, relationship drama that later ended up in divorce shortly after this episode. So, as you might guess... Actually writing these skits for the episode once everyone was actually in town kind of seemed like a burden. Lauren had scouted out where he wanted the skits to take place, but nothing had actually been cemented and written and everything had to work within the confines of the terrain. A few minutes before they were set to go live, the senior production assistant confessed to Lauren that she was completely terrified. Lauren responded by saying that he had just vomited, actually, out of nervousness. During this moment, 10 minutes before they go live, the production van loses power. The dressing areas for all these not-ready-for-prime-time SNL players, who are about ready to make their prime-time debut, I might add, were just dropping off costumes at each site that they were getting ready to film. It's not like they had a place to actually get into costumes. So all these Mardi Gras drunk onlookers were trying to grab an eyeful of the actors getting undressed. So the windows had to be blocked out with lemon pledge in order to stop all of these looky-loos trying to get a sneak peek. And here's where it dives just a little further down. Jane Curtin and Buck Henry were set as the MCs of the whole thing, overseers of, of the Mardi Gras parade, the two pillars that Lauren could cut back to should anything go wrong. But they were having a whole myriad of objects thrown at them, even including a human pyramid of drunkards trying to climb their way up to where Buck and Jane were seated, and had writers actually pushing them off with their feet. It was, I can't even imagine this scene. The actor set up to do the... <laughs> Set up to do the antler dance sketch, just look it up, I'm not even going to describe it, Um, had become another target for party goers who were drunkenly throwing bottles and hard objects at him. Um, And being a hometown guy, Garrett Morris was meeting the mayor of New Orleans to receive the key to the city or something like that, but he was also faced with a problem. A masked, really creepy rando guy emerging from the crowd and darting straight for the camera before he was grabbed and pushed aside. And in a sketch with Gilda playing her legendary old lady reporter Emily Latella, she was uh, misunderstanding Billy who was playing this riverboat captain, captain who Emily Latella understood as a liverboat captain. Um, at the end of this sketch... Gilda was mobbed and groped by a group of dudes trying to cop a feel. One guy, one friggin' jerk, even shoved his head up her dress. Garrett Morris threatened to leave the show due to a prominent sketch of his being cut due to time and everything going wrong. John Belushi locked himself in his hotel room because after 48 hours of straight partying, he kept saying he wasn't going to get enough screen time in the episode, which wasn't true at all if you actually watch it. And where's Penny Marshall fit into all this? Well, 
On top of having to fill in for the opening sketch featuring her co-star Cindy Williams and the Killer Bees biker gang at the last minute because Cindy was somewhere lost in the crowd, she was supposed to be reporting from this drag ball without directly saying that these were men dressed as women. It was the 70s and prime time, a different era. You couldn't say that. Communication had gone down between Central Command and Lauren, so Penny didn't know she was live, and it's super obvious when you watch it. On top of that, no one could find Cindy Williams, so she didn't show up until the last report from the drag ball, basically at the end of the episode. Penny said she wasn't even mad. She was just happy that Cindy had arrived and she wasn't left to fend for herself anymore. Honestly, though, Penny's part is the most hilarious to me. Coming in a close second is Billy, Danny Aykroyd, and Cindy Williams in a sketch about an all-new dance bar. In this sketch, you can catch a three years prior Billy doing what would become his Carl Spackler impression in Caddyshack, um, but now he's just a topless bar owner. I can't tell you how much I really love seeing this, like knowing what this character would actually grow into. The biggest thing during this episode was the Mardi Gras parade never actually showing up, despite the apparent careful planning between Lauren and the Mardi Gras organizers. But it was Buck and Jane ending the entire episode with saying to each other, well, shall we tell them, Buck? The parade has not been delayed. It never existed. That's right, Jane. Mardi Gras is just a French word for no parade. And with that, the episode closed out. Well... The SNL Live from Mardi Gras episode was a complete and total disaster. But looking back on it now, it was also an amazing feat. Everything went wrong. Everything possible went wrong. The writers were having to write material on the fly. People couldn't read the cue cards. Nothing was easy. Everyone was actually scared for their lives, especially Buck and Jane, who were just sitting there, just plain targets. But they all survived. Billy had a really silly sketch uh, where he was a pirate and got in like a dueling match with Gilda. Like, it's cute if you like them. And I think Garrett's uh, prominent sketch that he was upset about, which was a Roots sequel, um, was pushed to the next in-studio episode. So that got rectified. And at the rap party... Everyone was just kind of relieved it was over, even if it wasn't the most shining moment in SNL history. You can find a clip of all of Penny and Cindy's moments out there on the internet, but the entire episode is is only available on the season two DVD collection. Lauren really attempted to bury this episode. But dang, dude, what everyone tried to do was amazing. And I can't imagine what Billy must have thought only a month into being on this show. I can't even imagine. I know this was a long Murray moment, Justin, and it covered Billy and Penny Marshall and a lot of people. But knowing that this event happened, Penny was part of it, and this is a tribute episode, I just felt like it needed to be shared here. And just so you know, though, I there's a lot more that I, I cut out of this story, but this is what made it. No, thanks for sharing. Actually, uh, I have to now. Have, when we get done with this, I gotta check to see if I have season two in my DVD collection because yeah, I feel like weirdly that's the only season I have. I wanna, <laughs> really? I, but I don't know. I don't know if I ever watched the special features on that. Yeah. So I gotta so see if I can find this. Disc eight. I had to. I I could only find. 
I I kind of put this off for a while because I knew I was going to do this one. And I figured I could find the episode somewhere because the first five seasons are on Hulu. And um, yeah, it's not anywhere. You can find Penny Marshall and Cindy Williams. But um, the whole episode, whew. I mean, yeah. it's it's fun if you like SNL and you like watching things go terribly wrong, but um, it's rough. When I work uh, wrangling uh, Penny Marshall into a Murray moment, I mean, she hung out with all those SNL yeah. guys. She was she was tight with them, especially John Belushi. Well, we should probably wrap things up. This one's going a little bit longer than we normally go, but that's okay. It is. We had a lot of ground to cover. Penny Marshall had a long and illustrious career. Uh, Man, that was woman. There any, was there anything you want to add to League of Their Own or Penny Marshall before we close things out? Um, you know what? With a League of Their Own, uh, I didn't really realize this until recently that the, you know, when we see uh, the Gina Davis character older, you know, and even yeah. the, in and even her sister Kit older especially the Gina Davis one. I always thought that was Gina Davis in like old lady makeup and was always like, wow, that is some great makeup. They did a amazing job. Well, if you're like me, um, it's not, it's an actress named Lynn Cartwright. Um, it's definitely not Gina Bang Davis. Up casting job for so good. Yeah. They did a great job with that. And also a tiny little, there's so many little, nuggets of social commentary in this movie and one that really sticks out to me is the like i think you said 30 second minute it's more like a 10 second part of a ball going out of play during during the movie and this african-american woman who who's with a group of people who are outside the stadium because at that time they weren't allowed in picks up the ball and gives it a good gives it a good throw to one of the players and it's like this eye contact moment where she's just like yeah I can do that just as well as you just that moment of social commentary without actually saying it like they don't there's not enough time there's not enough time in this movie to explore a lot of things um but that gives it that just extra like jab to let you know what time period you're in and what's going on you've got the war you've got racism you've got sexism there's a lot of stuff it's not like a it's not a great time period even though we look no. back on on that era not, if and you're think, not white yeah if you're if you're not white and it's especially not a, a white man but yeah not white things are a little different anyway i love that part and yeah. it's very very short but um it's worth looking out for just I guess final thoughts. Um, a League of Their Own again. I think it's Penny Marshall's strongest film as a director. Um, but I do think that she is an underrated director, and I think that she does uh, gravitate toward like a particular quality of story. And I think she's very smart in uh, enlisting comedic actors and 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 people that she knows that that she can trust and. Uh, she's put she's put out some really great movies, and I think that as far as like the history of Hollywood is concerned, and especially with women directors, is one that will go down as as being one of the um, more 
innovative and powerful directors in Hollywood. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and uh, yeah, I just want to say I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. I hope that we've boiled it down for you guys. And if anything, seeing um, how much we appreciate Penny Marshall and the work that she's done and, you know, as an actress, as as a director, as a producer, for that matter, too. The woman's always had her heart in the right spot. And I and I truly believe was a, a great, fantastic person. And, and, and we we really did lose someone, um, uh, an original creative mind when uh when penny left us late last year well uh we'll close it out there um thanks again for checking this episode out next episode we will uh, go back to our sort of regularly scheduled programming we're going to kick off the next episode for the new year um sort of paying tribute to how we started the episode with a tim burton film we're going to return to tim burton for the start of uh, the new year with uh, his third film, the 1989 movie. Uh, it's 30th anniversary of Batman 1989 with oh Michael Keaton and um, it, Jack Nicholson. It is the 30th yeah. anniversary. And I think a good time to, to talk about that movie because really uh, outside of the superhero genre, there's not too many movies coming out these days. So, Not too many movies that look like that original yeah. Batman either. So we'll talk about uh, Tim Burton's Batman. As always, if you're following us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, Don't Push Pause Podcast. Facebook, Don't Push Pause Podcast. You can always check out our website, don'tpushpausepodcast.com. Comments, suggestions, we welcome it. Yeah, if you want to email Anything. us directly, don't push pause podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we want to close out this episode. Uh, normally we have our outro music uh matt pace does our outro music and our intro music but uh uh, we're gonna go a little bit different direction um our outro uh we're gonna play a song by a a singer songwriter and filmmaker out out of austin texas been a longtime friend of mine but in early 2000s he wrote a song called penny marshall and i've always liked it and i was re-listening to it i emailed him and he sent me the song and and i played it for you Lindsay. and um, I loved you know it. We, we really <laughs> loved it so we want to uh, outro the show with uh, eric's song uh penny marshall which i think is a very charming song and it'll extend uh, this tribute to the I, outro i can't think of a of a more opportune time than for this song to happen yeah. right now so until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Born Carol Penny Marshall in the Bronx on 9-15-42 With nothing ever handed to her She had to work for what she wanted to Michael Henry in 61 got the
divorced in 63 Penny Marshall Such a time. 